it has been our practice over the years to, on this Reformation Sunday, invite a special speaker, and our special speaker preacher this morning is Dr. Russell St. John. He is currently the pastor of Twin Oaks Presbyterian Church in St. Louis. Uh, he previously served in pastorates in Washington State and in Pennsylvania and served as a chaplain in the U.S. Navy. Dr. St. John has degrees from Covenant Seminary, Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and the London School of Theology. He currently, in addition to pastoring, um, he also serves as an adjunct professor for preaching at Covenant and does uh, travel to various places teaching homiletics or preaching. Russ is married to Amy and is together they have six children. Uh, Russ and I uh, went to seminary together. We go back a long way, almost 25 years we just calculated recently. Um, we worked together on the grounds crew, got to know each other there, um, did a lot of theologizing, philosophizing, and solving all the world's problems as we weed whacked and did other things, got poison ivy together, things like this. But we had a lot of time to build a kindred spirit. Um, I love Russ and his heart for the gospel. I guess to characterize him, he has a very, very clear conviction about the gospel, and he is able to communicate it in in an extremely clear and attractive way. I think you'll see that. So it's a great privilege for me to introduce him to you. But more importantly, he is the one who God has providentially ordained to be here today to bring the word of God to us, and we are thankful for that. Russ? Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here with you, and I want to extend my thanks to Tony and Nathan and to the session of the church for for inviting me to be here with you. Uh, You may not know this, but your congregation and mine have several connections. We've served together on various mission teams, sent members uh, together in various places around the world. We had Tony out to to speak at our fall missions conference last year, and so it's a delight for me to be able to be here with you this morning. I want to begin by by asking you a question. Have you ever gotten up from some room in the house where you were sitting, walked down the hallway into the kitchen, and then stopped and thought, now why did I come here? And we've all had our fair share of senior moments. If you forget what it was that prompted you to get up in the first place, if you forget what the need was, then certainly you can't figure out what the solution is when you get to where you're going, and that's, that's not a big deal if the dilemma that prompted you to get up and move in the first place was you needed a piece of scotch tape. Uh, but, but what if the dilemma is more serious? What if the dilemma that prompted you to get up and move was that you need to take your insulin? What if the dilemma that prompted you to get up and move was you needed to take your high blood pressure medication? What if the dilemma was actually life and death consequences? What if you got up to go to the kitchen to get your cell phone to call 911 because you just found your spouse unresponsive in the family room, but then you get to the kitchen and you can't remember what the dilemma was? I want to suggest to you that I, uh, I, I think that many evangelical churches in America have forgotten that we, as human beings, face a dilemma, a serious life or death dilemma. We're living in a protracted period of amnesia. We're living in a generation-long senior moment, as it were. It's not a scotch tape type dilemma. It's an insulin type dilemma. We've 
we've forgotten the dilemma that faces us as sinful human beings before a holy God, and because we cannot remember the extent of the dilemma we face, we're certainly not looking for or remembering the biblical solution. And it's with that in mind that I would invite you to open with me to Romans chapter 1. This morning we'll be looking at verses 16 and 17 of of Romans 1, and as you're turning there, I, I, I want, I want to, to remind you that if you were to ask most broadly evangelical Bible-believing Christians, what is the gospel? What is the good news? You might hear from them, well, well, the Bible is the good news. Or you might hear from them, God is the good news. Or, or Jesus is the good news. Or maybe the most specific that you'll get is, is you'll hear somebody say, well, the gospel is that Jesus died for my sins. And that is true. It's true, but it's not complete. It's it's true, but it's not the full truth that God has given us. I mean, after all, ask yourself this question. Does God only require me to be free from sin? Or does He also not require that I be full of righteousness? Does He only require that I not have any sin Uh, against me in the ledger, or does He not also require that I be full of righteousness that has been earned through obedience to Him? I think that many in our churches in America today have forgotten that salvation demands righteousness. You must stand before God not simply free of sin, but also full of righteousness. So, let me ask you this morning, where will you get that? Where will you get righteousness, born of full obedience? Where, where will your source of righteousness be? Well, as we read from Romans chapter 1, listen for how we have a dilemma that we've forgotten. We have a dilemma as sinful people who stand before a righteous God, and how in remembering that dilemma, we find the solution in Christ. And as we read together, remember that this is God's holy word. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Heavenly Father, we pray that as we turn our attention to this word today, you by your Holy Spirit will instruct and convict and lead us that we might trust in Christ. And it is in His name we pray. Amen. Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel, and you may wonder why. How is it, Paul, that you're not ashamed of the gospel? After all, Paul's devotion to the gospel had brought upon him scorn, had brought upon him hardship, humiliation, beatings, imprisonment, Paul wrote while he was in fact, in prison. So, why no shame? Well, he says so because the gospel is the power of salvation. It's the power of salvation for all who believe. And so, the gospel is the good news. The word gospel means good news, and it's good news for the salvation of those who believe. But then he says something that on the surface seems not to fit. He says something that on the surface seems not to be good news at all. He says, in it, that is, in the gospel, in the good news the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, how on earth is the righteousness of God good news to any sinner? How is the righteousness of God good news to any sinner? You see, we have a forgotten dilemma. 
there's a dilemma that, our, that, that Christianity in America has, has forgotten, that the righteousness of God by itself is not good news. This is what Martin Luther wrestled with as he tried to understand these verses. He could not understand how the righteousness of God is good news. How is it that me being a sinful man standing before a holy God who reveals to me His righteousness, how is that good news to me? After all, uh, look through the history of how God, the righteous one, has interacted with people who are not righteous. God, the righteous one, cast Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. God, the righteous one, sent a flood to deluge the earth and scour it of those who were unrighteous. God, God, the righteous one, came to Abraham and said, walk before me and be blameless. God, the righteous one, sent plagues upon the the nation of Egypt. God, the righteous one, drowned Pharaoh and his armies in the sea. God, the righteous one, descended upon Mount Sinai, and he is so pure and so holy that the rocks smoldered and burned by his presence. God, the righteous one, scattered the nations of the promised land so that his people could enter in. God, the righteous one, afflicted the Philistines with boils when they stole the ark. God, the righteous one, exiled his own people into Babylon for their sin. God, the righteous one, is the one who cried out, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The righteousness of God then ought to lead you to this profoundly painful admission, I am not righteous. I know my own heart, and I know my own sin, and I know that there is a righteous one, and I know that I am not he. God, the righteous one, covenanted with Adam in the Garden of Eden, making a covenant of strict justice with him, saying, do this and you shall live, do this and you shall die. In other words, this is how to live eternally with your God. Obey Him completely, and by obeying Him, earn righteousness. And it's not just the God of the Old Testament. It's not as though we can say, well, that's what, that's what the God of the Old Testament was like. But if we turn to Jesus, we find something else. After all, Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then he gave us the two greatest commandments, and he told us that we must love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, and we ought to be about the business of loving our neighbor as ourselves. And, and Jesus didn't say, he didn't just say, uh, don't sin against God and neighbor. It, that's true. Don't, don't do that. But, but it also means this, actively go about loving God and neighbor. Actively go about serving God and neighbor. Actively go about obeying God and blessing neighbor, and do this, do this, fulfilling all of the positive commands of the law toward God and neighbor, not just breaking the, the prohibitions, but fulfilling all the positive commands, and then do that with your heart, mind, soul, strength, tongue, hands, attitude, and the inward motivations of your heart, and do it all the time, every time, perfectly. Are you doing that? It was Jesus, if we appeal to him, who said that if a man even looks at a woman lustfully, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. If, if you hate your brother, you've murdered him with your heart, if not with your hands. And even our own confessional documents say that we owe unto God perfect, personal, 
and perpetual obedience. Just let that sink in. Perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. And so you can understand why Luther asked, how is the righteousness of God good news to any sinful man? Paul said in Galatians 3, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. James chapter 2 and verse 10 said that if you sin and break the law in one point, you, you are accountable for all of it. We have a sin condition that we wrestle with. Uh, David said in Psalm 51 that he was sinful from the time his mother conceived him. You know Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Paul said that so far from being born children of God, he he said in Ephesians 2 and verse 3 that we're born children of wrath because of our sin. The, The point is this, you can't obey fully and neither can I. You cannot earn righteousness. This is why Isaiah says in Isaiah 64 and verse 6 that all our righteousness is but filthy rags. Now listen to what he says. He doesn't say all of the wicked things that we've ever done are filthy rags. All of the bad thoughts I've ever had are filthy rags. All of the ill words I've ever spoken are filthy rags. He says all of the things that I consider righteous with which I would go to the Lord on the judgment day and hold out to him as the best things I've ever done Those are filthy rags. All my righteous deeds are shot through with sin. There is nothing that I have to offer to my God that is not tainted with my sin. So how is the righteousness of God good news? This is what vexed Luther. How is it possible that God revealing his righteousness to sinful man is good news? How is this righteousness, which is beyond my ability to produce, but which God still requires of me, good news? How can I offer perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience when I myself am am a sinner? Now, this is the dilemma. This is the dilemma that Christians in America have forgotten. You owe God righteousness. Have you given it? When I was in high school, I played baseball. I was an avid baseball player. I worked really hard at baseball. I was a pretty decent high school baseball player. And one day there was a a, a professional scout who was at our baseball practice, and he was scouting a guy on my team who was a big, strong ox of a man who could hit a baseball a country mile. And so I asked the scout for a regular guy like me, what are the chances of getting a scholarship to play college ball someplace? And he said, well, if you can regularly throw the ball 93, 94, 95 miles an hour, you'll get a scholarship. Now, I worked hard at baseball. I really did. I worked hard at it, and I tried my very, very best, and uh, I made every effort to lift weights, and, and I ate my Wheaties. But at the time, I was a junior in high school, and I was about five, seven, maybe 135 pounds dripping wet, and when I reared back and gave it all I had, I could throw the ball 85, 86 miles an hour, But it simply wasn't in the genetic cards for me to throw the ball 95 miles an hour. And so I had this prize held out to me. And the physical impossibility of reaching the prize. I want you to feel something right now. I want you to feel the dread 
of having the prize of eternal life held out to you and knowing that you're spiritually incapable of obtaining it. The Lord hates iniquity. Sin cannot dwell with Him. He promised eternal death to Adam in His breaking of the law. The Lord's righteousness is perfect, and so yours also must be. Imagine, as it were, stopping for $10 of gas, and you have your debit card. It's not enough, it is not enough that there is no negative balance on your card. If there's no negative balance on your card, then you have zero dollars. In order to buy that gas, it's not enough that you have no negative balance on that card. You must actually positively have funds. You must actually have credits to your account. And the same is is true of righteousness because righteousness is the purchase price of eternal life. Do you understand that? Righteousness is the purchase price of eternal life. Jesus died for my sins means that there's no negative balance in my account. All the negative balances have been paid. There's no more debts to me. But even if there's no sin in your account, there's no balance of positive righteousness which you have earned by personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. And so what will you do How will you get righteousness? You see, this is the dilemma. This is what we face as sinful people before a holy God. Sit in that dilemma. Just feel it for a minute. Remember it. Sit in helplessness. Sit in despair. And then remember the solution, because God has provided the solution in Christ Jesus. Paul says in verse 17, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so, you know that the covenant of works that God made with Adam in the Garden of Eden was not the end of the story. There is a covenant of grace. And it goes like this, God said, I will send my son, and he will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. That's it in a nutshell. He will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He will earn the righteousness you need, and you know that he did because he was without sin. Hebrews 4 tells us so. You know also that Paul said that God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus earned that which Adam failed to. And in verse 17, it says that this righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The righteousness of God is revealed to you for your faith. It's the righteousness of Christ revealed to you so that your faith can reach out and grab a hold of it and make it your own. It's for you to have. It's for you to possess. It's a righteousness that belongs to somebody else, but which becomes yours by faith. Paul says elsewhere in Romans 5, 17, that it is, quote, the free gift of righteousness. Do you have this by faith? Do you have it by faith in Christ? You see, there's, 
theologians talk about something called the passive righteousness of Christ and the active righteousness of Christ. The passive righteousness is this. He passively took upon himself all of your sin and died for it on the cross. But the active righteousness of Christ is this, that he fills your account with limitless deposits of righteousness which he earned through his perfect obedience. In other words, Jesus did not just die for you. He lived for you. He fulfilled all righteousness, and He did it for you. Do you claim it as your own by faith? That He did this for you. He fulfilled the law on your behalf. He perfectly obeyed all the time for you. You see, that, now that is good news. That is good news. That's why the righteousness of God is for your faith and not for your dread. That's why Paul says that the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall not live by trying harder. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall not live simply by having no debts in their account. The righteous shall live by faith because it's by faith that you seize hold of the righteousness of Christ and are counted righteous yourself. The, the righteous won't, won't live by going to church more or praying more or giving more or serving more. The righteous won't live by anything that they have in themselves that they offer to God because all they have are filthy rags. The righteous will live by faith in Christ. And so when you trust in Jesus Christ, His righteousness becomes yours. Thus your heavenly Father sees you as being just as obedient as Jesus was. Do you realize that? When you go to your God, He sees you as being just as obedient as Jesus was. And if you're just as obedient as Jesus was, then you are also fit for heaven. Now as Luther wrestled with this, he had an aha moment. Pardon me, an aha moment that came only from the Holy Spirit. And the aha moment was this. This righteousness is the righteousness of Christ that is for me. And he understood, finally, he got it. It made sense to him. The gospel sunk in. And so I want you to listen to what he wrote in that moment. He said, quote, I felt I was altogether born again and had entered heaven itself through open gates. I felt I was altogether born again and had entered heaven itself through open gates. Now, you also must remember this solution to your dilemma, because if not, there are going to be consequences. And one of the consequences that Luther wrestled with was this, when have I ever done enough? When have I prayed enough? When have I confessed enough? When have I worshiped enough? When have I given enough? When have I served enough? When have I done these things enough to be seen as righteous before God? And you'll never get to the point where you believe you have done enough and you will be perpetually insecure about your salvation. Or you'll succumb to a couple of aberrations, one of which is Phariseeism, where you simply push down the requirements of righteousness further and further and further. You push down the bar until you push it so low that you can step over it. And then you become self-righteous. And you trust in your own works, which are in fact filthy rags. And you serve to be seen, not to serve. And you become the whitewashed tomb that the Pharisees were. And your righteousness becomes that of checking boxes uh, to the very low bar that you have pushed down. And, and you define your righteousness by 
comparing yourself with other people, not by comparing yourself with the Lord. And your obedience comes because you want to be better than the next guy and not because it's a hard obedience to the God who has rescued you. And all the things to which the Pharisees succumbed, people succumb if they're looking to build the case for their own righteousness. Or, or on the other hand, you, you leave the bar where it is and then you succumb to despair. And you engage in self-loathing because you know you can't hope to make that righteousness. You just can't do it. What about you? If you are in Christ Jesus, then this is the result. And I want you to hear this. And, and if somebody next to you is dozing off, give them the elbow of love. If somebody's not paying attention, because they're here, listen to this. This is what it means if you're in Christ Jesus. Your heavenly Father cannot love you more and he cannot love you less than he loves you right now in Christ. Did you hear me? Your heavenly Father cannot love you more and he cannot love you less than he loves you right now in Christ Jesus because his love for you never was contingent upon what you do or don't do. It has always and only depended upon what Christ has done for you. And what Christ has done for you is fixed, it is accomplished, it is historical, it is finished. And because it is finished, the love your heavenly Father has for you cannot and will not change. And that allows you to believe and then to rest. If you did no good work from now until the day you died, your heavenly Father would not love you one ounce less. And when you understand this, you will want to do good works to serve your heavenly Father, but they won't add to what Jesus has done for you because you cannot earn righteousness. You have a better chance of throwing a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. You have a better chance of throwing a 950-mile-an-hour fastball. I want you to feel the dilemma and then remember that this solution is good news. And don't leave here today. Do not leave here today without trusting, without saying this to yourself. Jesus died for me. Yes, and that is good. But he also lived for me. And he earned righteousness that is mine by faith. My account is not just free from having a negative balance. It is full of limitless deposits of righteousness, which Jesus earned by his perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. You see, God will not... God will not receive so many of the answers and excuses we give to him. When you stand before him on that last day, it will not be enough to say, I have been a good person. Because if we define goodness the way the Bible does in reference to God alone, then no, you're not good. You are shot through with sin and everything that you've done is tainted with sin. God will not judge your work on a scale as though he will take the more good things you've done and the less good things that you've done and balance them out. God will not judge you in reference to your neighbor, and it's not enough to go to God and say, but I'm a better person than my next-door neighbor was, and surely I'm a better person than Hitler. Instead, you must possess full, perfect righteousness. Only Jesus earned it. Only Jesus 
offers it to you for your faith today. So by faith, seize hold of it and say today in your own heart, this is mine. This is mine. He did this for me. He died for me, yes, but he lived for me. And so on the day of judgment, on the day of judgment, when you stand before the throne of God, this will be your confession, and it must be your confession. Jesus lived for me. Jesus died for me. All I have is Christ, and he is enough. All of us have at times those I guess you could call them senior moments. We walk into one room, we forget why we, why we went there. But the church in America is sadly in the midst of an extended senior moment, and we can't, and we must not forget our dilemma. And the dilemma is this, you must have righteousness. You must have it. Because if we forget the dilemma, then we're going to forget or minimize or neglect the solution which is the righteousness of Christ Jesus. He is the only solution. And so remember and believe that his righteousness is offered for your faith. His righteousness is offered for your faith. So that as you believe, you can confess along with Martin Luther. I felt I was altogether born again and had entered heaven itself through open gates. For by faith in Christ, you have. Will you please pray with me? Our gracious God and Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he lived for us and died for us. And we thank you that by virtue of his perfect, personal and perpetual obedience, he earned righteousness, which he shares with us. Father, by faith, we possess it, such that when you see us, you see us as only and always having obeyed. And Lord, we rest and rejoice in the truth that you cannot love us more and cannot love us less than you love us right now in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.